Welcome, fellow brave believers. This is Kingdom of Context. I'm Sean, your host. I want to thank you for joining us tonight. We're going to be talking about the Father and Son, and are they co-eternal as the dogmatic Trinity doctrine proclaims, professes, enforces, shouts, repeats. For uh, hundreds of years now, <clears throat> there's been a dominant theological doctrine that has been imposed, and I say that word very specifically, imposed onto modern Christendom, onto most believers, to say they must believe this idea or you're not saved. It's part and parcel with the idea. I've met maybe one or two, that a handful of Trinitarians that I can think of off the top of my head that I've met in my life that believe this doctrine and do not condemn you to the lake of fire if you don't agree with them. Most of them carry a vitriolic, very strong sense of entitled condemnation to step in the place of Yeshua and go ahead and judge their fellow brethren to the lake of fire if they do not agree, if others don't agree with them on this doctrine. I want to say right off the bat, um, for anyone watching, it's a man-made doctrine. So we're going to show you the scriptures tonight, how it's a man-made doctrine, how it does not hold up to scripture, and why hopefully give you the tools to feel confident to have this conversation and dispel it. Um, but at the same time, you you understand um, the places where they're mistaken, basically, right? To give you that apologetic, uh, to help you walk out in love and patience as much as possible. Because the, this particular crowd can be extremely vocal. And uh, they this is an obsessive topic for them. They tie in the deity of Jesus with this, which is silly. Um, and they tie in all kinds of other things, specifically, you know, the, the definition of the word God. We're going to be talking about that tonight. But we're going to be looking at a whole bunch of scriptures specifically on all the different stages of Yeshua's existence and what scripture describes about that. So before he was incarnate in the flesh through the womb of Mary, when he was in the flesh while his ministry on the earth was being fulfilled, after he was resurrected, during the millennial reign, after the millennial reign, and then we're also going to hear what the Father has to say about this topic. Is his son co-equal to him in authority at any point in this story? We're going to jump into the scriptures and check it out. So I want to thank everyone that's in the live chat already uh, here to join us. And Karen C., thank you for being here, sister. Appreciate you. And outside the camp, Arctic Twin D, the Patton's 11, Susan Games, Tamara McKee, Mrs. Vader's here. I'm guessing Vader Bear's here also. Welcome. Mariah Moreno, Tracy Jones, Tyler Porter, Miss Marsha, Micah, Sacred Values, Sunset Stella. Miss Wildly on Poppers here and West Blaze Music as well. Welcome. If you guys haven't already subscribed to West Blaze Music or Wildly Unpopular, two other really good um, YouTube ministries that you want to go check out. Great resources for different topics. Um, tonight, they're both on YouTube. Just type in um, Wildly Unpopular and West Blaze Music. But West Blaze and I do a show every Wednesday night um, on his channel, or at least. We're in season two, I should say, and that show is held on Wednesday nights. And uh, we just finished an episode tonight with ASAP Preach, episode 37 of Uncommon Ground. So go check that out at West Blaze Music. Welcome everyone else that's here. We really appreciate you. Guys, uh, as always, you if you uh, saw the intro, you can have the Investigon, Investigating Babylon series for yourself. So it's over like 32 plus hours of the entire thing, plus some extra content. 
from other interviews and discussions that bleeds into that same content. Um, that is on a thumb drive that we're given out as a gift for a donation. All that information is in the video description below. Um, you guys are welcome to check that out. Also, go pick up our, our book of First Enoch on Amazon. It's, a, it's part of our contextual study guide. It's just another easy way to support what we're doing here if you like what we're doing, as well as it gives you a chance to uh, have gifts for people, but also just to study the scriptures for yourselves. Because we, with the First Enoch text, we color code it with context, put in literary points of context, and give you supporting scriptures so you can understand where every, all the doctrine in that First Enoch book is found in the modern American canon of 66. We're going to be going over some First Enoch verses tonight. Um, so it's going to be fun. Lots of fun, guys. Lots of fun. So without further ado, let's just go ahead and jump right in. Father and Son, co-equal, co-eternal, classic Trinitarianism. They, their mantra is they believe... The Father and Son are co-equal and co-eternal. And they mean co-equal in authority, and they mean co-eternal, meaning none of them ever did not exist. But you'll hear some apologists and pastors will call it the eternal nature of the Son or the eternality of the Son or the eternal Son. And they'll say, philosophically, they will try to say, well, because the Father's eternal, that means he always had a Son, because he wouldn't be called a Father if he didn't have a Son. So they, they take it like that, right? Instead of saying Yahweh is always eternal, and at some point the Son was brought forth, the Scriptures just don't tell us when, they say, well, since he's called the Father, and we call him the Eternal Father, he must have eternally always had a Son. Okay, even if that was true. And we're not even going to talk about the eternality of the Son tonight. We're not even going to talk about before something the Scriptures are silent on. They don't even speak on. We're not going to talk about before the world was was began, when Yeshua was was brought forth from the Father, right? Um, we're not even going to debate that. Honestly, they can have that one. If that's if that's the hill they want to die on, scriptures are silent on it. It has no bearing on your salvation, literally none. They can have that if they want to. If they want to believe, uh, I think we're going to run into some verses tonight that would discredit that idea. But if they want to truly have that, that's fine. Where we run into a serious theological problem is this we have on screen here tonight. The co the co-equality, the co-authority of the Son that they think is equal in authority to the Father. And we're going to show you tonight with scriptures that, that that's never been, never will be, isn't today. At no point in the story of our Messiah has he ever or will he ever be equal in authority to the Father. That's just not how the story goes. So let's jump into it. Before Yeshua was born in the flesh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. I'm sure there's a large mix of Trinitarian adherents that hopefully are getting their itch scratched by me addressing this particular verse first. This is their go-to. This is their favorite. Moderators, please, let's keep the chat civil if you see any people getting out of pocket. Appreciate you. Thank you so much, moderators, for everything you do. Everyone that's here, really appreciate you. And actually, let me do something real quick. Um, as always, guys, there's no expectation for being a moderator in our live chat. Um, if, if you're here and you're a moderator, participate. Uh, this, I'm giving you this because I trust you. Um, if you're not 
here, it's okay. We got other people that are here. So never feel like you're obligated. There's no requirements. But if I've seen you enough and I've seen your behavior, I'll make you a moderator. Let me go to make someone a moderator right now, real quick before we get started. Oh, never mind. They already are. Okay. Sorry. I forgot I already made them one. All right. So John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and where was God, where was with God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So I want to focus real quick. It says, and the Word was with God. So a lot of people will say, well, this was Yeshua. And I agree with him because in eight verses down in verse 14, it tells us the Word became flesh and walked among us. Yes. So we understand now it's not just the mind, will, and attention. It's not just the plan. It's not the strategy. It's not the idea of the son. The son did exist and he was made in the flesh. It's actually a verse we're not even going to cover tonight because it has no bearing on the actual topic. First Timothy 3.16, that God was made manifest in the flesh. And yes, I did call Yeshua God before he was made manifest in the flesh. We're going to explain how that works because John 1, 1 through 3 calls him God also before he was made manifest in the flesh. But what does that word God mean? It's theos in the Greek, and it can mean the Almighty, or it can mean a celestial being, or another ruler of angels or of men, or even the little g gods, the false gods, the unclean spirits who pose as an, a god, but they're not really not. So, <clears throat> yes, before Yeshua was born in the flesh, he was God. He was a ruler, and I'm going to show you how what level of authority he was a ruler over the angels in heaven tonight. But he was never equal to the Father or above the Father. But yes, it's right, according to the Hebrew and the Greek, and the definition of that word, it is right that this text would call him God before he came in the flesh. Now, where a lot of Trinitarians go is they'll say, well, he was still God when he came in the flesh. How dare you question the deity of Yeshua by saying he wasn't God while in the flesh and the man at the same time? It's because you cannot be... This, is, this isn't Greek mythology. You cannot be a God and be man in the flesh. There's a huge difference in ontology. And this is where they say, well, it's a mystery. And they quite try to poorly quote 1 Timothy 3.16. It's not a mystery. That's not the mystery it's talking about. The mystery it's talking about in 1 Timothy 3.16 is how the Father took him from, took the Son from existing as a spiritual being in heaven and transferred him somehow, some way into a biological mortal made of dirt. And then he's glorified at his resurrection back into a spiritual being. So that's the mystery of godliness that Paul's outlining in 1 Timothy 3.16. It's not that he was both God and man at the same time. That is a made-up invention that is uh, what we call a doctrine of, of men, tradition. So yes, the Father can look at, at the, the John, writing the Gospel of John, is right to call the Son, before he was born of Mary, God. Makes perfect sense according to who, what the definition of the word God is. And this is where I've tried to, in some discussions and debates that I've had, I've tried to hold their feet to the fire and many times, you know, putting it on screen for them, reading it out loud to them, but they they never truly address it. They'll say, well, I don't agree with that. The last time I did it was, I believe, with a gentleman named Joel Sedekes from the Think Institute. And 
he said, well, I would challenge the definition of that word. I'm like, oh, okay, you should make your own lexicon then. You should, you should challenge Thayer's Greek lexicon. You should challenge Strong's then. Why don't you write an appeal? Because that, you know, that you would literally just be rewriting accepted terminology for thousands of years that in context actually applies and works. But for them, it doesn't work. This is why they struggle with this. So I said, therefore, he was with God in the beginning. Yes, Yeshua was with the Father in the beginning. And through him, all things were made. I highlighted that little part, through him, all things were made, because we're going to get to it here in a minute as we break down the difference that Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 of the, who the Father was, for whom all things are made, versus the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things are made. There's a difference. Paul outlines it for us. Okay? 1 Corinthians 8, 5 through 6, for even if there are so-called gods, there it is, there's that word God, little g, little g, for he's talking about the unclean spirits. He's talking about the Corinthians who were rebellious from Macedonia, worshiped lots of Greek gods. They had become converts to, to faith in Yeshua, and he's he's explaining to them that they're, those gods they used to worship really aren't gods. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, please check out our Investigating Babylon series to understand that statement, as there are many so-called gods and lords, yes, all the nations have their own gods and lords, Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father. There's no way I can make this any bigger, but I did highlight it. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we exist. There's descriptor one of the Father. Now moves to his second person, and there is but one Lord. Jesus Christ, what does the word Lord mean? Master, ruler. He is our Lord whom we disciple under. He is our high priest of the covenant. He's the Lord of the great house of God, Hebrews chapter 3. He is over. Who's the Lord of the manor? Who's the Lord of God's manor? Of the Father's manor? Yeshua. But there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we exist. So you see, now it lines up with John 1, 3. Because through Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, through whom all things were made, through whom, through whom, not for whom, through whom. The for whom all things came and for whom we exist is to the one God, the Father. In verse 5, but in verse 6, and the Lord, there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of Trinitarians will try to conflate these two and say these are not talking about two separate opinions. It's just adding description. But again, they readily agree there is a father and a son. So this is where even their arguments confuse me. And they sound like modalists, but they swear they're not. So this is where it's very clear there's a differentiation of purpose. There's one God, the Father, clearly stated by Paul, for whom all things came. There is one Lord, clearly Jesus Christ, stated by Paul, through whom all things came, which matches up with John's testimony. Okay? First Enoch chapter 48, verses 2 through 6. And at that hour, the Son of Man was named in the presence of the Lord of Spirits, and his name before the head of days. Indeed, before the sun and the signs were created, before the stars of the heaven were made, his name was named before the Lord of Spirits. Guys, the word name means authority. 
whose name? The Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? We 100% know that's Yeshua. Who was the Son of Man? He was named before the Lord of Spirits. Who's the Lord of Spirits, guys, in the book of Enoch? I'll put it in, answer us. Uh, let's try to address that in the live chat. For anyone that's in the live chat, in the book of Enoch, who is the Lord of Spirits? It's used consistently throughout the entirety of the book. Never changes. Let me know in the in the chat. Who is the Lord of Spirits in the book of Enoch? First Enoch. I'll give it just a minute. There's a slight delay with the live broadcast in the live chat. Okay. So we're getting a couple answers rolling in here. Okay. Micah says it's Father God. Stephanie Dottery thinks it's Yahusha, which would be Yeshua, the Son, the Son of Man. James Owen says it's Yah and the Father. Let's Plays Music says it's Yahuwah Sabiath, which is the Father. Tracy Jones says the Father. Tyler Porter says the Father. Lord of Hosts is the Father. All right, guys. So, yes, the Son of Man is the Son is the Son of God. The John 3.16, the Son of Man. John chapter 8, verse 39 and 40. The Son of Man is Yeshua. Who is the Lord of Spirits? It's the Father. So it says the, the Lord of Spirits, the Father named the Son of Man before the sun, moon, and stars were created. And he did this. That Okay, just to give you some understanding there, that means he gave him his authority before the sun, moon, and stars were created. He goes on to explain the role and purpose of this son of man, whom this character was that Enoch was seeing. And no, everyone, he was not, Enoch was not staring at some vision of himself. <laughs> the entirety of the book of Enoch glorifies the son of man whom was with the father before the world began. We're seeing a glimpse of that in a description here. It's not Enoch. Enoch is being shown the vision of heavenly things, past, present, and future. Enoch is not, for anyone that tries to claim, no matter scholar or modern day, they, they try to claim that Enoch is actually prophesying about himself being the Messiah. They absolutely are mistaken and need to read the actual book. So the Son of Man is being named. It means he's been given his authority by the Father before the sun, moon, and stars are created. So what does this mean? People have been saying, well, Sean, what are you trying to say? Well, it says, and for this reason, he's been chosen and hidden before him. That's before the Father. He, the Son of Man, has been chosen and hidden before him, the Lord of Spirits, before the creation of the world and forevermore. So we have an, an identity here. Yes, uh, the middle passage in white talks about like Isaiah 42, uh, Isaiah 53, that, you know, it's Yeshua, it's Romans 15. He's going to be a staff to the nation, to the righteous there and to stay themselves. He shall be a light to the Gentiles. So this is talking about the Son of Man, more prophecies about the Messiah. That's Yeshua of Nazareth. It goes on to say, for this reason, the Son of Man has been chosen and hidden before him in the presence of Yahweh, in the presence of the Lord of Spirits, before the creation of the world and forevermore. So now we do know, before he became in the flesh, before the world was created, he, Yeshua was with the Father before the world was created, was in his presence. That's what it means to be before him. It's pretty amazing. So therefore, it is right that Yeshua would tell us in John chapter 17, 
Um, this is a typo. One second. Let's get this right. Quick little typo. It's supposed to be verses four through five, not verses three through five. Sorry about that, guys. Thanks for your patience. Let's try this again. So it's right that Yeshua tells us, because this absolutely matches up with what we just read in First Enoch. Yeshua says, I have glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, this is Yeshua speaking to his Father, Yahweh in heaven. Glorify me in your presence. What do we say? What does before him mean? Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. With the glory I had with you before the world existed. So even once I I would, you know, even though Enoch first Enoch 48 that we just read tells us it was before the sun, moon, and the stars were created, he was given this authority. I would personally say it was more than likely on day one after all the angels were created, he then the son of man was given that authority. This is remembered the sun, moon, and stars weren't created till day four. So it, it would be my particular, since the text isn't silent on this, it doesn't actually say, it would be my understanding that because of what we're about to read here in a minute, if you put the two together, which is what context helps you do, then you're going to see that my conclusion has some validity to the idea that the son of man was named on day one so that all the angels could know who's where the authority structure was. Father's the almighty. He's the Lord of all spirits. Yeshua is given the authority that he's being given and he's with the father. Okay, why do I say that? Not only because Yeshua tells us directly, Father's greater. He was given as a, he was given glory by the Father. That means the Father's greater in power. And he was with the Father before the world existed. What does Yeshua tell us? John chapter eighteen, verse thirty-six. Jesus answered, "My kingdom is not of this world." Can you have authority being given to you as a spiritual being in heaven above? in the presence of all the angels and not be a kingdom because it's not of this realm. As he tells us, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were my servants, my servants, who would those be? It's not the father. It's the angels. My servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is not of this realm. We have three huge statements here. His kingdom is not here. He has servants. He has a kingdom. We just read where he, when he got his authority down to potentially the day, day one. And it was before the sun, sun, moon, and stars were created, and the Father gave him his authority. That means the Father gave him authority over all the angels as king of heaven. But the Father's still greater. That's why he's called the Almighty. Let's keep going. Now, that was before Yeshua came in the flesh. Let us read about what Yeshua said when he was here and then he was in the flesh. John chapter 14, verse 28. You heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. It's pretty amazing, right? You would rejoice that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. You would rejoice that I'm going to the Father because the Father's greater than I. You know what? I need to I need to buy one of those megaphones, you know, like and it's like super loud, I'm like, because the father's greater than I. 
hilarious. I should show up with face paint someday and just do like a 30 minute repeating video of just me because the father's greater than I like it's at a football game. It'd be great. So he told his disciples, why would they want to rejoice? Because he's going to the father and he says, because the father's greater than I. What happens when he gets to the father after he's resurrected? He gets his priesthood, which allows him to atone for their sins. Who is a priest in God's order of all creation? Someone under the authority of the Almighty who ministers to the Almighty. Man-made doctrines. we got to get rid of them, guys. More than importantly, I'm, in the past year or so, the whole concept, because I've done multiple debates with people, uh, discussions, debates, whatever you want to guys call them, I don't really think they're debates because they're not timed and formatted. That's what I view as a debate. If it's me just having a discussion with someone, even if we disagree, that doesn't mean we're debating. We're just, you know, exchanging viewpoints. But ultimately, guys, you guys have seen them. Most of you in the live chat who are here on a regular basis, you've seen them. You've seen the illogical tap dancing they do when I ask certain questions or I present certain verses on screen. And I'm nice and I smile and I let them move on and move away from it and act like they distracted me and they didn't distract me. I'm watching the whole time thinking, okay, they're not going to answer that one. Maybe I'll try another one. I'll give them, I'll give them grace to think maybe they'll answer another one at some point. And it just turns into a tap dancing match. And it, it's, it's frustrating, but that can be thrown aside. The frustration doesn't have to rule the day, right? That, I can let that go. But it's when those people claim you're not of the faith, and they walk around telling other people that unless you believe what I believe, even though it's inconsistent and the scripture doesn't say it, even though I made up this terminology and I'm ignoring the definition of words, if you don't believe it, you're out of the faith. Like they're self-proclaimed arbiters of the position that Yeshua alone holds the position of judge of people's souls. This type of arrogance and pride is, I just don't know if I should, I don't know if I should treat them with kid gloves anymore. It's so divisionary, so divisive, so contentious. I don't know. It's, you know, it's like, how long do you, do you hold patience with someone that's literally putting stumbling blocks in other people's faith? And really it's a cult mentality. Uh, Master Soup. Good to see you again, brother. It's a shame your phone's only at such low battery. Hopefully you can hang on. But it's a shame that, uh, it's a shame that the Trinitarian mindset has become so dogmatic to the point where they truly feel justified in telling other people the judgment of their souls. They literally take that right out of Yeshua's hands and they proclaim it for themselves like they're the judge of mankind based off wording, based off wording that they can't even define. I mean, I I, I did that. Um, the last the last lengthy discussion I had was with the, the gentleman I mentioned earlier, and it literally got to the point where he, he said, oh, maybe I'm not doing a good job explaining this. And I'm thinking to myself, you haven't done a good job at all explaining this the entire three hours. Like it's, it's bad. It's real bad. But yet 
you know, that same crew, they question my faith. They question everyone's faith that disagrees with them. And it's become, it's a shame it's become cult mentality where they say, if you don't repeat this mantra as if it's the, you know, the verbatim from the text of initiation into their cult, if you don't repeat this mantra, you're not in and we have salvation and you don't and you're out. And there's a lot of twisting that goes into this guys. This has been a long standing doctrine that has infiltrated the faith of believers um, for about 1700 years. It's sad. And it's just, it's become a situation where I don't, it's, it's, I don't know if it deserves patience. I want to say, be patient with everyone, right? You see me try to exemplify that in real time as we have these, but I don't know if it, they even deserve the patience. If they're going to walk around saying, I've got something that contradicts scripture. I won't address the scripture that contradicts my views, but if you don't believe with the cloudy confusion wording of what I've said, then you're not a believer. You're questioning, you know, the Messiah and you're not a believer. Like they literally, it, it's, it's, it doesn't get more clear cut. Like if you just exchanged uh, a couple of words in their statements with a different uh, religion, or even a different, uh, you know, like crazy cult religion. And like, it, it literally is just cult intimidation and enforcement. It's it's not the love of edify, edification of the saints for scripture, helping people grow in the knowledge of God so they can work out their, their salvation with fear and trembling. It is, um, it's a problem. It's a problem. And I see how the same spirit that's so willing to throw you to the lake of fire and stand in the place of Yeshua to do so, I can see why that same crew of mentality of theology several hundred years ago led the inquisition and burned people at the stake because it is a hate it is a um a theology that's for some weird reason it produces within it nine times out of ten in my studies my real life examples and experiences it produces within it the fruit of condemnation to the point of these people would would want you to die and in the past, when this particular theology had political and uh, executive and judicial power, they literally killed people over this theology. So this is why I say I'm not sure. I'm not sure they deserve our patience. I think these people might need to be called out and treated as the scriptures tell us to treat someone who's contentious among the brethren. Just a thought. I'm praying on it. I'm trying to be patient. I believe they're they're possibly truly of the faith. I don't think I don't question their faith. I just think they're extremely misled with bad doctrine. And maybe it just attracts a certain type of zealous character. Maybe that's maybe that's why they're so dogmatic for whatever reason. Um, I don't know. But John 14, 28, Father is greater than I, says Yeshua. That should be the end of it, but it's but we got lots more scripture to go through. So here we see in Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus declared, "I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth." Oh, okay, cool. So now Yeshua, while in the flesh on the earth, is saying, "The Father is Lord of heaven and earth." So now we've established that before Yeshua became incarnate in the flesh through the womb of Mary, 
he was not equal to the Father. He was given his kingdom by the Father, and he had servants, that's the angels, underneath him. And that is in heaven above. But he was given that to the by the Father to him. Okay, so he definitely was not an authority equal to the Father. Now in the flesh, he's already told us multiple times, the Father is the Lord of heaven and earth. The Father is greater than he is. Should be easy, but just for thoroughness, we're going to go through more verses. John 17, 3 through 5. <laughs> I'm so sorry, guys. I, I, that's how I messed it up. That's how I messed them up earlier. <clears throat> There we go. So John 17, 3 through 5. So just one verse before we read 4 through 5 earlier. Remember we said, I accomplished everything you sent me to do. Now glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was created, before the world began. Two verses earlier in verse 3, Yeshua says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Again, I've had Trinitarians try to tell me, well, this is the and Jesus Christ part is only expounding on the only true God. Now, those are modalists that say this, not classical Trinitarians. But it's just funny to me because the, the text literally qualifies it for you, whom you have sent, whom you have sent. So he's talking to the Father the only true God. So Yeshua in the flesh by his own mouth has said the Father is greater, the Father is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he is the only true God. Okay? So what about after Yeshua was resurrected? What did he say then? Because remember, what did we talk about earlier? The flesh is different from a spiritual being. We're promised at the resurrection, and Yeshua was the first fruits of the resurrection of mankind, promised to mankind in the covenant. It means he was the first one to experience the fulfillment of the promise of the covenant to be given eternal life. Yeshua was the first to experience that. And that, he tells us in Luke 20, 36 and other places, we get a spiritual body at the resurrection. Yeshua, out of all of mankind born of a woman, was the first one to experience dying and being resurrected back into a spiritual body. So the same mind, will, and emotions no longer has a dirt body, at his resurrection, he has a new body. It's called incorruptible in 1 Corinthians 15. It's like the angels, like Yeshua talks about. It. It's an eternal, immortal style body. It's made of water and spirit. It's not made of the dirt. This is how Yeshua could appear and disappear inside of locked rooms with the door shut. This is how Yeshua just, you know, floated up to the uh, to heaven in Acts chapter 1. So it's a different body. It's a body like an angel. It has different capabilities, more capabilities. So this is where we would refer, remember, what do we say? What does the word theos mean? It's It can mean the Almighty. It also can mean a celestial being, which is what the terminology that the concordance will use for a spiritual body, a glorified being, like an angel, right? And Yeshua said at the resurrection, we'll get bodies like angels. So therefore, now, once resurrected, Yeshua has a God-like body again. So after Yeshua was resurrected, John 20, verse 17, before he ascended to heaven, he's talking to his disciples. He says, Do not cling to me, Jesus said, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But I go and tell my but go and tell my brothers, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. 
He's ascending to his God. That means, so, okay, so let's just stop right here for a minute. What did we talk about earlier about the word God? I mean, ruler doesn't always mean the most high, doesn't always mean the almighty, but it can mean a ruler from heaven, a spiritual being. It can also mean an unclean spiritual being who, who acts, who's a faker, a poser, acts like a God on the earth, but he's really not. That's what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 8, these so-called gods. They're not really gods. They're just unclean spirits. But because they have a spiritual body similar that can do different things that the, the mortal flesh cannot do, they're referred to as a little g-god. Yeshua is telling his disciple right here that he is ascending to his God. That means an authority figure over Yeshua. So before Yeshua was manifest in the flesh, he was not equal to the Father. We went through the verses. While Yeshua was in the flesh, he was not equal to the Father. He said so in many places. We've covered three. Now that he's glorified and given a God-like body, a spiritual being body, at the resurrection, he is still calling the Almighty, his Father, his ruler, his authority figure, his God. And also who? And also Thomas's God, the person he's talking to. To my God and your God. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel know with certainty, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Does it say that God made Yeshua or Jesus equal to him? No. It says he made him Lord and Messiah. That's what Christ means. Messiah. Who was the Messiah? He was the one that was going to become your high priest and redeem you of your sins. Who's the Lord? That. Who's your Lord? That's the one you are has authority over you. Again, it's that means post-resurrection, God made Yeshua, gave him the authority to be Lord and the positionship of being the high priest, which is the Messiah, the Christ. He gave him those things because the Father's greater. Yeshua is not. 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 5. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Now, I want you guys to play close attention. Now, we've we've laid a foundation. We're going to get to some tricky passages. I want you to pay close attention, please. This is God and pleasing. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Awesome. Is it talking about God the Father or God the Son? God, our Savior. Verse goes on. It's going to explain. Verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus, the man Christ Jesus. Interesting. So now we have a unique concept where it uses in the same passage, and this is where we look for context. Remember, context creates comprehension. When we run into something where the translator has decided to capitalize the word God, maybe you shouldn't have. Maybe you should have. You can use it. You can use capital G O D for the Father and the Son. I'm I'm not dogmatic on that. That's fine. But it can cause confusion. But what does he say here? Even if there were no capitalization in any of this passage, look at verse four for the first five. Excuse me. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between 
God. And man, that's three parties involved. The one God, the one mediator, and the men. And it tells you who the mediator is, Christ Jesus. That was the role of the Messiah, why the Father sent him, to become our mediator. There's one God. So this is Paul telling us and telling First Timothy, reminding him there's one God. Paul reminded the Corinthians earlier in 1 Corinthians 8, there's one true God, and he's the Father. Jesus told us in John 17, 3, there's one good, one true God. I can hear, I can hear the Trinitarians now. They're they're shouting at the screen. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. If you do not believe I am he, you will die in your sins. Context, guys, context. You should always remember John chapter 8, verse 18. Yeshua says the Father sent him. He's talking to the Pharisees, the ones whom he immediately says, if you don't believe I'm the one that the Father sent, you're going to die in your sins. Who was the Father supposed to send? His righteous servant who would justify many, Isaiah 53.10. The Messiah, the high priest of the covenant, Psalm 110.1. That was whom the Father promised to send. This is who John the Baptist Shouted to the world before his head was cut off. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It doesn't take a rocket science to put two and two together. The same ilk of Pharisees that refused to read Isaiah 53 today, I'm guessing, probably didn't read it back then. Because they would see the righteous servant who would justify many, who's led like a lamb to the slaughter. And here's John the Baptist shouting, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was a, that was a descriptor of the Messiah. The righteous servant sent by the Father. Is a servant greater than its master? Is a servant equal to his master in authority? He would no longer be the servant. Before Yeshua showed up in the flesh, he was subservient to God. He was never equal in authority to God. While Yeshua showed up in the flesh, he was subservient to God, to the Father. He said the Father was greater. Post-resurrection, Yeshua, in his glorified body, now he is he actually is a new creation because now he's a man who's been glorified with a new creation. And this is why we're this is why Yeshua tells us we've been given a body like the angels, but it's technically made even better. But that's maybe a different, different show. This is 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 5. Paul's teaching Timothy, there's one God. And he's currently your mediator as high priest of the covenant, the Messiah. This is why you would have the writer of Hebrews. I personally believe it's Paul, but if you don't, that's okay. No no big contention. I personally believe it is because of the way it's written and the, the depth of knowledge, but whatever. Hebrews chapter 1, 8 through 9. This is, remember, we just read 1 Timothy 2, 5, right? Who's the mediator between God, the one true God, and mankind? It's Yeshua of Nazareth. He was sent to become the Messiah, the Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, 8 through 9 is an explanation of that process of him getting his priesthood. It says, but about the Son, he says. Who says? The person speaking through the psalmist. But about the Son, he says, that's the Father, your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. What does the word God mean? Does it always mean the Almighty? Let's look at the context, and you tell me if this is supposed to mean 
God's throne endures forever and ever. Speaking of the Father or the Son, I think you'll get it pretty quickly. And justice is the scepter of your kingdom. What's Isaiah 42 talk about? He's given the scepter of justice to rule over the nations. Who's, who's that given to? The servant of Yahweh. The light to the Gentiles, just like we read back in Enoch 46. It says, you, speaking to the one whom the scepter was given, to whom the throne was given, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. That sounds like our faithful, awesome line of Judah, Yeshua of Nazareth. Therefore, God, speaking to Yeshua, therefore, God, it's right to call him God. He's your ruler. He's been made Lord and Christ. That means king and high priest of Israel. It's right to call him God. That's the definition of that word. Your God, so therefore Yeshua, who is God, who is ruler, your God, just like Yeshua said, he returns back to his God. Therefore, Yeshua, your God, has anointed you with above your companions with the oil of joy. How do you get above your companions with the oil of joy according to God's word? It's because you're ordained as the high priest of covenant Israel. This is the process for ordaining the priest, just like we see in Leviticus chapter 8, I believe it is, with Aaron, his ordination and priesthood. Moses poured the oil over his, ran down onto his beard, onto his clothing. It's a part of the ordination process of a high priest of covenant Israel, and that's exactly what Yeshua was promised to be. And someone has to pour the oil over you because they're in authority over you. That was the, the father ordaining the son to be high priest over all of Israel. It's right here, guys. Therefore, God, your God. So if you still think that this is speaking about the same God or a family of gods, I know Trinitarians don't like that either. They get they get really all out of pocket when you start trying to make them pin pin them down on giving you an actual term to define how they believe a co-equal father, son, and spirit are all called God, but yet individuals. They don't like using the word entity, individuals, personhoods. They don't like using it as a family moniker. They don't. They just. They don't even really have a description for it. It's weird. I think it's because they're worried about getting kicked out of the cult if they say the wrong wording, so they just back away altogether. Ultimately, it's very simple, guys. There's a father. There's a son. They're two different characters. The son has never ever been equal to the father. No one in the scriptures ever says the son is equal to the father. None of the prophets, the father himself, we're going to go over those verses in a minute. The son never, ever said he's equal to the father. No one speaking about the son ever said he's equal to the father. It's Trinitarian man-made doctrine that needs to be removed from the body of believers with a quickness. Revelation 3.12, Yeshua speaking, post-resurrection. And he says, the one who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Whose temple? Yeshua's God. Yeshua's ruler. Yeshua, the, the same temple that Yeshua was granted the priesthood in, as Hebrews 3 and 5 tells us, that he is now the overseer, the chief, the lord of that temple. He's the ruler that presides as high priest in that temple. And it is a temple that ministers to somebody. Guys, it's the Father's house. That is what the temple of God is. And Yeshua is the minister over the Father's house. That 
by all definition of all terms in all of history. That means he is underneath the Father's authority. Okay. Stressing that one pretty hard, but I guess it just calls for it. And he will never again leave it. So I'll I'll back up just a little bit. Revelation 3.12, Yeshua, speaking to one of the churches um, in Asia Minor. The one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. It's not, it cannot be clear. Yeshua, even as glorified high priest, resurrected and exalted to the right hand of the Father, is still saying the Father is his God, his ruler. He is under the authority of the Father. He's never been equal with the authority of the Father. He will never leave it again. Upon him I will write the name of my God, there it is a second time, and the name of the city of my God, there it is a third time, and the new Jerusalem. So now we got a contextual qualifier that's explained to us in, in all of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, 2 Baruch, 2 Ezra, as well as Revelation 21. We know what the new Jerusalem is, and we know who comes down with it in Revelation 21, 26, excuse me, 21 verse 22, the Almighty and the Lamb. That's important to remember because we're going to talk about the Father in Revelation, talking about He's coming down. Looks, this is the fourth time the New Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from whom and from where from my God. Thank you guys for um, quickly ejecting all these uh, spam bots in the chat. So this is, it's just it doesn't get more clear, guys. During the millennial reign, okay, so we're going through a time progression, okay. Since we're not in the millennial reign yet, let's look at what is the levels of authority the son has during the millennial reign. Is he equal to the father during that time, maybe? If I go above and beyond to, to uh, patiently give Trinitarians the benefit of the doubt and say, what is what about the millennial reign time period? Maybe he's elevated and somehow given the same uh, uh, placement and authority as, as the father during that time. Maybe. No. Watch, watch this, guys. Watch the scriptures. What do the scriptures say? This, the scriptures is where we get this whole idea, the whole story of our faith, the whole idea of where we live and why we behave as we do and what we're supposed to expect to get for that behavior, whether good or bad. Why would we, we believe in God and his son? It's supposed to be from the prophets, the words of the Lord given in many portions and many ways, as Hebrews 1.1 says, given to us for our edification and knowledge. We cannot make up our own story. That is cult territory. We must follow what the words say. Let's read 1st Enoch 16.1.8 and look at the millennial reign time frame when Yeshua is there. It says, and the Lord of spirits, that's the Father, placed the elect one, that's the Son of Man, that's the Messiah, on the throne of glory. There is no one else in all of Scripture that the Father places on the throne of glory except Yeshua. Matthew 25.31. When Yeshua is placed on his throne, when Yeshua is sitting on his throne, judges all the nations. The Lord of Spirits, the Father, placed the Son, the Elect One, on the throne of glory, and he shall judge all the works of the holy above in the heaven. How do you do that? It's because you've been made Lord, all authority in heaven and earth, Matthew 28, 19. You've been made Lord and Christ. So this doesn't even this particular vast passage isn't even talking about judging mankind. He does that too. 
excuse me, but he's also going to be judging the angels, which is literally what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, 3. But, but we'll be judging angels too, because we get resurrected and placed into the same level of authority that Yeshua is above the angels, but not above Yeshua. And likewise, Yeshua was resurrected and placed in authority above the angels, but not above the Father. Because it's the Lord of Spirits who placed the elect one on the throne of glory. Yeshua didn't place himself there. I know the arguments, guys. A Trinitarian will argue. Well, that's just because he chose to be subservient, a servant. First Philippians 2.7. That's because he chose to be a servant. So therefore, he could have stepped on the throne if he wanted to, but he chose to be humble and to be a servant and empty himself and let the Father give him that throne. That's not what the Word says. That's you imposing your view into the words called eisegesis. It's called twisting scripture. That's not what the word says. The word says the father who's the almighty chose his servant, someone below him to come do a job. And when that job was accomplished and earned Hebrews five, seven through 10, he then gets the reward of that job, which is a position only the father can give him. This is the father placing the elect one. That's Yeshua on the throne of glory. First Enoch 61, 8 through 10, it goes on and it even elaborates. So we're still millennial reign. It's even elaborating in this time period. Yeshua has already been given the throne of his glory. And it's going to elaborate. Chapter, chapter 61, verse 10 and 11. And he will summon all the hosts of the heavens, all the holy ones above, the hosts of God, the cherubim, the seraphim, the ophanim, all the angels of power, all the angels of principalities, and the elect one. Who is that? The elect one, that's Yeshua, the Son of Man, and the other powers on the earth and over the water, on that day shall raise one voice. It should say they, but it's just, a, you know, Enoch is fragmented in places. On that day, everyone that he just summoned, all those entities in heaven above, shall raise one voice and bless and glorify and exalt in the spirit of faith and the spirit of wisdom and patience and mercy and judgment, peace and goodness. And they shall all say with one voice, blessed is he and may the name of the Lord of spirits be blessed forever and ever. Yeshua is placed on his throne. And in the same time period, it says in that day, they do all this in the same time period. All of heaven and earth decides to praise the Father, the Almighty, the Lord of Spirits. Okay? Millennial reign, Yeshua is still giving all praise to the Father because he's not equal to them. What about after the millennial reign? Maybe then. Maybe maybe at the end of the story, he, he gets the ultimate. The, the, we're going to have... Two fathers instead of father and son. Maybe. Nope. First Enoch 61, 8. Oh, I'm sorry. First Corinthians 15, 24 through 28. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Isn't that amazing? So he had a job to do, right? He's made Lord of heaven and earth. All authority in heaven and earth are given to him. He wages war against the wicked. He reigns on earth for a thousand years. Satan's let back out for a short season, deceives more people. Once they're squashed, all the enemies of God are dealt with. He's destroyed all dominions, all authority, all powers. 
for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This doesn't happen until everyone's resurrected. That's at the end of the millennial reign, guys. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put everything under his feet. Who put everything under his feet? Who did it? God. Who's who's the God here? It's the kingdom of God, the, the Father. Like I just said, the one that she was going to hand back everything over to. God put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything's been put under him, this clearly does not include the one who put everything under him. It's just in case you get confused and fall into Trinitarian mind uh, mind trips. It's he's, Paul's literally going out of his way to clarify. Now, when it says everything's been put under him, this clearly does not include the one who put everything under him, meaning God the Father. So this, see what I'm saying? Just in case you, you get out of whack in your thinking and you forget all these other verses we went over and the role of the Messiah, which by definition is someone under the authority of the Father. Just in case you forgot all that, Paul goes out of his way to remind you when it says everything's been put under him, this clearly does not include the one who put everything under him. And when all things have been subjected to him, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put all things under him, so that God may be all in all. So I, I, <laughs> I can hear it now, and I want to address it real quick. People will say, but Sean, look at verse 28. He says, then the Son's made subject to him, meaning he's not now. What, is, what does Revelation 3 say? What did we just read in 1st and 61? In the millennial reign, this is the time frame we're talking about, which is we get to the end of the millennial reign. In the millennial reign, Yeshua is the high priest of Israel. He's going to be a high priest of Israel forever. What did we just talk about in Revelation 3? He goes to the temple. That's where he does his high priest job in the temple of his God. So just in case you get confused with the language, and you and you your mind starts to think, well, maybe the maybe maybe if I forget all these other passages that Sean just went over and just focus on this one part of this one little statement, maybe what they're saying is true, and they'll stop condemning me for not for not repeating their mantras. I want to encourage you break out of that absolute theological intimidation, which is dishonest, unloving. Break out of it. A ton, a wealth of scriptures teach us. The Father is the Almighty. He is always the Almighty at all times. He, that never changes. Regardless of who, what authority He gives to anything in all of creation, whether His Son or angels or kings on the earth, it, He never loses the status of Almighty and the authority of the Almighty. So in the timeline example of Yeshua becoming the whole purpose, He was sent to justify the many. Yeshua, the High Priest of Covenant Israel, always ministers to the Father. This is why Yeshua tells us to pray to the Father, our Father, who art in heaven. Yeshua never, ever is equal or supersedes the authority of the Father. Last uh, discussion I had with a Trinitarian, um, I brought this passage up, and so did one of the people from the audience, and 
he said, I, I admit this is a difficult one, but I'd, I'd have to work through it. And I'm like, you just, you'd have to ignore it. That's all it boils down to. There's no working through it. Who does the father say is the almighty in authority? The father himself. Who does he say is the almighty? Guys, let's jump into Revelation chapter one. You know, before we do, I need to show you guys this. Just, to, just as a reminder, I think this might be helpful for everyone watching. Just as a reminder, guys. Just so you, many people skip over Revelation 1.1. They never think about it. They never really take a moment to, to truly, they never take a moment to truly just stop and say, what is this verse actually saying? And I'm going to show you a translator insertion in Revelation here in a minute. Um, that is why that mixed with people not stopping to take a good look at Revelation 1.1 is why people come to bad Trinitarian ideas. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. Who gave it to him? God. Who's above Who's above Yeshua in authority? The Almighty. Who gave him this information? God. To, to, what, did he, what did God want him to do with it? To show his servants? God gave Yeshua this information to show his servants. How did, he, how did Yeshua do it? He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Do you guys realize there's four characters involved in Genesis in Revelation 1-1? There's God the Father. There's Yeshua the Son. There's the angel. And there's the servant, John, on the island of Patmos. Four people listed here. He gave the Father. The message comes from the Father. So you cannot you cannot just assume every single word in here is being spoken by Jesus. And we're going to show you that here in just a minute. So if I go down here, well, actually, let me go back to the slides. If I go back to, to the presentation, we look Revelation 1, 4 through 8. What does it say? John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and this is John speaking now. Okay. So the introduction was this this message comes from God, but John is taking a moment in the text to say, now I'm speaking. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and was and is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So who is the one who is and was to come? Who is and was and is to come? Everyone will say, well, it's, it's got to be Yeshua. Didn't we already talk about this, that the father said he's coming too? We're going to leave him out. Father's coming too. Father's house is coming. So the father's coming. That's that's how that works, guys. So grace and peace to you from whom? From him who is and was and is to come. This is the Apostle John, the same one we read from John 20, 17 earlier, where Yeshua told the this same apostle that Yeshua is ascending to his God and to John's God. Same guy. He says to the pro the churches in Asia Minor, grace and peace to you from him who was who is and was and is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So now we got God the Father, seven archangels, and Yeshua all being mentioned right here. Grace and peace to you from the entire authority structure of heaven above. What an incredible greeting. What an incredible opening to this letter, to all these seven churches in Asia, some of them good, some of them bad, some of them lukewarm. 
grace and peace to you from the entirety authority structure of all existence who is in heaven above the father his archangels who minister as servants and priests to him and the great high priest yeshua of nazareth jesus christ the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and has released us from our sins by his blood we know that's talking about yeshua now because through the blood of his purity right his faithful obedience that's the idiomatic phrase for his blood allowed him to get his priesthood position to atone for our sins this is what it means to be released from our sins he's the one that's given authority revelation 3 5 two chapters later to raise us from the dead that's how we're going to be forever and finally released from this bonding decaying temple of doom <laughs> that we live in that's full of sin and needs to be atoned for we need a brand new body that's never sinned before this is what we're given through the authority given to yeshua of nazareth the messiah and he earned that authority because of his great obedience. That is what it means to be released from our sins by his blood. Who has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Priests to his God and Father. John is telling all the churches in the first century AD in Asia Minor, all the believers, the same one that Peter wrote to, the same one that Paul visited and wrote to, he's telling them all that God the Father is the God and Father of Jesus Christ also. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Behold, now he's going to, guys, who's coming in the clouds? Both of them, but technically Yeshua comes first. He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be written. Clearly speaking about the Son. Amazing. Amazing. Now, look, and it's right in this moment, it's right that the translator inserted these uh, italics or these um, quotations here because it's speaking and it tells you who's speaking. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. Guys, it literally tags on the word the Almighty, just in case you're confused with the breakdown of information here. Because John is opening up as an introduction, then he starts reminding you of some prophecy about Yeshua, and then he starts his actual message in verse 8. You know the one that God gave Yeshua to give to the angel to give to John? He actually starts it here in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Thus, this is a thus saith the Lord moment. Who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. Who did he who did John just talk about the, the is and was and is to come up here in verse four? So it qualifies in the context who he's talking about. And he literally qualifies it with the Almighty. This is not the Son. He already told you there's a differentiation. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. And he has a God and Father. Isaiah 44, 6, famous Trinitarian passage. Thus says Yahweh, the King and Redeemer of Israel, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and the last, and there is no God but me. What did Jesus tell us? There's one true God, right? John 17, 3, one true God. So Trinitarians, they love to say, oh my goodness. See, Yahweh says he's the King and the Redeemer. That's Yeshua. Yes. You know that Moses was called a Redeemer. Anyone that saves you is called a Redeemer. He's a saint. Yahweh sends his servants to save you. Yahweh gets the glory. What did Yeshua tell us in John 17, 4 and 5? 
or no, no, it's not. Um, yeah, yes, as I've glorified you with the glory. Wait, that's in John 17. It's further down in John 17. Let me try to go there real quick. Yeshua says to the Father that he's glorified the Father. Yeah, I gave them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me and that we may be perfectly united so that, may, so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them just as you have loved me. So we still have in the same passage that Yeshua says that there's one true God. We see that he's trying to glorify the Father with his words and his prayer because he accomplished everything the Father sent him. So yes, the king, the ultimate king, is the Almighty. And he made Yeshua the king of kings, like an emperor status over the kings of the earth that we just read from Revelation 1, the firstborn faithful witness, kings of the earth, and the high priest of the covenant. Like we read back from Acts chapter 2, verse 36, God made Jesus Lord and Christ. So yes, the father can still be called a king. And he still is the Redeemer. He gets all the praise for all the good things that are happening on the earth because he sends his servants to accomplish these things. It's, it's that easy, guys. He's the ultimate. The buck stops with him. And all the glory flows up to the Father. The Son came to glorify the Father. And the Son said, there's one true God, it's the Father. Revelation 22, 12 through 13. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to give to each one according to what he's done. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Most people would say, my goodness, this is Yeshua speaking. This must be the Trinity. This is it. This is it. Now, classic Trinitarians will get mad because the, the modalist Trinitarians will claim this verse as their own. But again, let's, let's go to Revelation. And this is where I was telling you earlier, we're going to see a translator decision that has been made in the text that was just their decision because the translator didn't know any better, apparently. Behold, I'm coming soon, and my reward is with me. Look, what is this? Guys, put in put in the live chat if you know the translator insertion I'm pointing out right now. We just read the passage. I'm telling you this is the Father speaking, not the Son. So what is the translator insertion that we're seeing on screen here? Appreciate everybody in the live chat. Thank you again, Mods, for helping with that spam earlier. James Owens is saying capitals. Let's see if there's any other suggestions here. You're right, Lisa. It has gotten off track in many, many churches and denominations and seminaries. They do not care what the actual text says. They have a pre, they have a disposition. Can everyone see the screen? Everyone see the screen that I'm showing? Hmm. Let me try this again. All right. Can everyone see the screen? So we just read this verse. All right. West Plays Music has our, our answer. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. The person who, who puts the red in the Bible, the translator, the copyright guy, the guy at the publishing company, they've decided to put red on these words. But they don't realize that this is the father speaking. Father is coming with the Son, guys. Do not forget this massive fact. The words are in red. 
which everyone, every Bible puts those words in red for Jesus speaking. But this is the Father speaking. This is a translator insertion. Guys, if uh, YouTube has um, reduced our our audio qual or video quality, um, all you got to do is go into your your settings button on the video player and go highest picture quality, and it should um, should get you back to 1080p. We're we're broadcasting in 1080p. Revelation 22:12. Behold, I am coming soon. My rewards with me to give each one according to what he's done. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first and last, the beginning, and the end. So then, when we see this verse in Isaiah. People think, well, see, look, it must be talking about the sun because that same statement is in red words in Revelation 22, and they think it's Jesus talking. This is a translator's decision to put these words in red. The words were not in red ink in the in the original Greek, guys. And if everyone who understands the position the son was given, that he's never been equal to the father, he is not the first and last or the beginning and the end. He is not the alpha and the omega. The Father is. The Father is the Alpha, ultimate authority. That's why he calls himself the Almighty. He's the jimmiest of Jim bros. He is the Almighty, guys. No one is greater than the Father. He's Broly times Gohan. He's beyond Superman. He is greater than any character you can think of that is more. No one has greater power than the Father. He is the Almighty. He rightly deserves our prayers, our worship, our adoration, our respect, the title of the Almighty. He rightly deserves all that. The Son told us to pray to the Father. Guys, the Son worships the Father. So when Yeshua goes into the memory of Revelation 3.12, Yeshua goes into the temple of his God. That's Yahweh is the God of that temple. Yeshua goes into that temple to minister on the altar and to actually do his priestly duties for more than just sin atonement, but for the peace atonements, for all the joyful festivals of the Sukkot, Shavuot, Unleavened Bread, Sabbath days, morning and evening sacrifices, whenever Yeshua might go in there to prepare a meal for his father as the priest of the house of God. He is serving in the greater authority. Your Messiah was promised to be put in a position to where he is always serving the Father. That was what was promised of him. He's a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Yes, Lisa, the Father's coming too. First Enoch 105. Let me let me read it off to you, okay? Hang on, let me open up the uh let me open up our, our study guide for first Enoch. I can find it real quick. It's supposed to be quick, but it's not happening quick. That's weird. Oh, there it is. Okay. I just want to encourage you guys with this. First Enoch 105. Well, that's the old one. Why is that? Why is that doing that? That's weird. Um, huh. One second, guys. Sorry about that. I can't even find uh, my PDF of my own study guide. Where in the world? There it is. It keeps doing this weird thing. Stop being weird. 
There we go. All right. It's a big book. Okay. And you can barely see it. That took forever. All right. So, uh, First Enoch 105, in those days the Lord commanded them to summon and testify to the children of earth concerning their wisdom, show it unto them, for you are their guide and recompense over the whole earth. For I and my son will be united with them forever in the paths of uprightness in their lives, and you shall have peace, rejoice, children of uprightness. Amen. So just encourage you guys, the Father's coming for sure. He's literally coming down with his house. It's going to be amazing. Um, if you guys have any questions, you can put them in all caps in the chat and I'll try to address some looking here, scrolling through the past chat to see, I think I saw a question earlier, but if it's not an all capitalization, I won't see it. So be sure to put an all capitalization. And, uh, during this time, moderators, I just want to lovingly ask you to, um, Try to keep the, uh, if just in case we have people watching, waiting for the moment to, to chime in, just try to keep it civil in here. Yeah, I guess I don't see any, I guess I don't see any questions. All right. No questions. Okay. All right. I think we have our first question, guys. We've uh, touched on this. Um, Micah, hey, welcome, brother. I'm not sure if you're new here or not. We've 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 answered this quite quite a few times, um, many times actually. It comes up so much. Um, the lake of fire, the actual Gehenna, that's eternal, but anything thrown in it is destroyed forever. It's not eternal. It's not a place of eternal life. It's a place of death, finality, destruction. Um, in Matthew 10:28, I wanted I want to. Um, Give you a challenge tonight, okay? Go to Matthew 10, 28 and look up the word or look up the word hell that's in Matthew 10, 28. And you'll see it's the word Gehenna in the Greek, which means the lake of fire. And look up, look up, look up the meaning of the word Gehenna too. And then you see what Yeshua says in Matthew 10, 28. It says, You should not fear man who cannot kill the body who can kill the body but not the soul. You should fear God who can kill both the body and the soul in Gehenna, the lake of fire. So the smoke of their torment may rise forever. The lake itself may be there forever because it's literally in the kingdom, in my understanding, um, next to the throne of Yeshua in a valley next to his mountain. But anything thrown in there is destroyed from existence. It's taken out. There is no eternal conscious torment like the Catholics teach. It's another man-made tradition. Tried to actually get a guy on to talk about it and have a debate about it, but he he refused. And that's his whole shtick is to talk about uh, eternal conscious torment versus annihilationism. And um, he didn't want to come on, but whatever. So it, it's the the lake is there forever. The, the smoke that may rise from it, it will be there forever, but anything thrown in it is destroyed. That's the purpose of saying destroying the body and the soul. Once the body and soul are destroyed, there's nothing left. You're not, there's no spiritual body. Because remember, you are not given a spiritual body um, because you are not glorified and resurrected like the saints. If you're thrown in the lake of fire, you're not a saint, right? You've been judged for destruction. You rejected the Father and the Son in their ways. So, yeah, lake's eternal. 
the people thrown in it or not. Noel Brown, there is no second exodus. If you go to my channel, you go to uh, the playlists. I have a four-part series on the second exodus. We go through all the scriptures, and 99% of the time, the people talking about the second exodus are just taking the first resurrection passages and the great gathering that happens at the seventh trumpet on the day of the Lord, and they're conflating that into this new narrative about the second exodus. Um, and actually, the second exodus by name came from a book from 1984 called Asher Shemel, I think it was, Shemel Asher is his name, um, whom is a um, totally not a believer. Um, he's a guy that uh, believes that the God of the Old Testament, he's a vegan, and he believes the God of the Old Testament was a was a horrible God and that Jesus Christ, you know, was different from this father and all that kind of stuff. And just, yeah, a lot of problems, not just with the theology, but it's ordination, uh, but how the second exodus is taught in most Torah-based communities today, they're just conflating the descriptions of the first resurrection, and they're playing upon people's desire to escape persecution or possibly martyrdom. So it's, yeah, we do a four-part series. Look up Second Second Exodus, Kingdom of Context. You should see it, the playlist. And uh, also, Noel Brown, if you want to go to a recent video I did on my channel, um, it's called Rapture or Resurrection, and I interview two pastors that believe in the rapture, and we talk to them about it and go over each other's different opinions and views. Um, and you're, it's like a two and a half hour conversation. So you can just have fun with that if you like. Go back and forth and all that. Allison Beck, I, I honestly don't know. Um, you're asking, did the name Gad come from the deity or the tribe first? Um, clearly, Jacob, who's following God faithfully, following Yahweh, is not trying to name his kids after um a false deity. Remember, words can be used, you know, just like the word Lord actually means Baal, yet Sarah called Abraham Lord. It just means master. So um, I can't remember what Gad means. If anyone remembers in the chat, you know, I believe it's in like Genesis 32 when um, Leah was having the children, because I think Gad was a child of Leah, but she, she says like why she has those kids and why she names them that um, when she has them, each one. So uh, I would go check out, I think it's Genesis 32. Uh, someone help me in the live chat if you remember. Put that in the live chat for Allison. Uh, Lonesome Way is asking, couldn't the father and the son being Ikad be compared to marriage, equal in value and worth, but not authority or roles? See, again, this is what I, I don't get. The whole equal and trying to force these things into to the idea. Um, for one, they're not a marriage, so that metaphor would not apply. Marriage is something that's um, for a feminine and a masculine character um, or personification of ideas or characters. And that would not apply to, to Yeshua and to the Father, to Yahweh. So, again, they have different authority levels. It's expounded through all the scriptures I went to. Their value and their worth, they're obviously wonderful. Like, we value them equally awesome. Yes, I mean, if, if we just got to force it in there, for to appease somebody, but I'm trying to tell you tonight, stop appeasing these people who, who want you to repeat after me like a puppet. Stop appeasing the people, because if you don't repeat after them, they condemn you. This is not people you need to appease. Okay, don't let the Germans invade Poland. This is not any, this type of theological intimidation, just like you don't let the Pope take over Ethiopia in the 1500s. Right? We don't appease the people who run cults or who act in cultish ways that tell you, if you don't believe the words I say 
and especially if those words are not God's words, right? They're not established through the prophet and the veneration of all the testimony, but they have their own wording, which flies in the face of the truth. Don't appease those people, right? If they're going to be contentious about it, create peace and create separation as uh, the scriptures tell us. But ultimately, I, I wouldn't try and force wording just to try to fall into some category that sounds like what they want to hear. Okay. Clearly Yeshua is awesome. Clearly he's valuable and he's worthy. The father is greater than Yeshua. That means he's more valuable. He's more worthy. See what I mean? This does not mean we're questioning the divinity or the deity of Yeshua. Yeshua is without sin. That makes him pretty awesome. But we know, as James tells us, that God cannot be tempted. That makes him greater than Yeshua. Does that make sense? So respectfully, brother or sister, I would disagree with your comparison, and I would disagree with trying to force certain ideas into this. Um, and even in the example you've given, I don't think Scripture would align with that. Um, Lisa, I don't know if you're asking me a question. I, I see that you put it in all caps. I get it, but I, I didn't doesn't read as a question. So um, I don't know if you're asking me something or not. Please try to reword that. And I'll be glad to, I'm glad to address it for you. Just, I just need to understand what you're saying. Uh, Stephanie Doherty is asking, do you believe the angel of Yah from the Tanakh was Yeshua? Thank you. Great show. I appreciate it. Thank you, sister. No, it's not. I go over that in great detail in our tour portions. Welcome to check those out. There are a bunch of thumbnails with the white, white thumbnails with blue labels on them. Our tour portions. I go over that in great detail all through Genesis uh, to show you that this is not, um, I, and I have other tour portions I with different thumbnails from different years. I go through um, Genesis through Deuteronomy, but in this last year's tour portion, we only got to go through Genesis before I, I couldn't keep up with the pace for my schedule. But um, I show in great detail that the angel of, of God is not Yeshua. Just like I read tonight, until the appointed time, Yeshua was hidden with the Father and then revealed to mankind. So this isn't, he wasn't down here doing a whole bunch of stuff before then. That was an angel of the presence that we read about who was with the patriarchs to help them. Um, this is very common because angels are called ministering servants of Yahweh, sent out to help those inheriting salvation. Psalm 104.4 and Hebrews 1.14. Brother Micah, no, angels are, angels are destroyed too, brother. The angels are not, there is no, there is no reason for eternal conscious torment. The angels are destroyed too. This is why the angels are not immediately thrown in the lake of fire that are locked away in Tartarus. They're stuff, they're uh, finishing their sentence, if you will, and then they're going to be taken to the trash compactor. There's there will not be remember what we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, when all of the enemies, even death, are done away. So the angels who sinned and rejected their commission. Lane with women, created giants, created mass sin and corruption on the earth. They're locked away in Tartarus now. The only one left out was Azazel. He's still the one we re generically refer to as Satan, the dragon, seeking whom he may devour upon the earth, deceiving the nations. He's going to be let out, defeated, thrown in the lake of fire, just as all the other angels are. They're destroyed. They're, mankind's destroyed. Anything thrown in the lake of fire is destroyed. That's the, the point of it. And, uh, and I would suggest that... First Enoch chapter 65 gives us the process of, of how this lake of fire, the angels are thrown in first, and that's how the lake of fire, it does something, destroys the angels, and it turns the lake of fire into something that 
seemingly also destroys mankind. There's a unique uh, process of transition being described in 1st Enoch 65 about the lake of fire, in my understanding. So it's the great trash compactor. Everything's being destroyed in it. It's the great furnace. Nothing lives in there. It's not eternal life. It's eternal destruction. You're done. All right. Dustin Hall's asking about Isaiah 65, 11. Give me just a minute and I'm going to go try to look it up real quick. I don't have this one memorized um, off the top. Um, okay. And I, so here it is on the screen, brother. 65, 11. I think that's what you're 60. Isaiah 65, 11, uh, 11. I'm number one. Sorry. 65, 11. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny. Okay. What do I make of it? He's talking about rebellious people, specifically the occult, participating in the groves, eating the swine, um, worshiping the gods of fortune and destiny. Um, they're, they're all going to be killed. The kings of the earth, the unclean spirits are all going to be killed before Yeshua at final judgment. So. That's what it's alluding to in my understanding of the context of the entire chapter. But if you have a more specific question than that, um, please let me know. Uh, Lonesome Way, no, I haven't received a book in the mail, so I apologize. I don't know if it's just mail being slow or whatnot, but I don't know when you sent it either. But thanks thanks for the gift. Um, but... Uh, I can't, uh, guys, I just, just, I should say this as a general disclaimer to everybody watching. Um, I cannot read everything that people send me at this point, um, or the messages, the videos people want me to watch, um, the letters. I just got a beautiful letter the other day. Thank you so much guys, to the person that sent that. I don't want to put them on air cause they gave a donation as well. But, um, I got a beautiful letter the other day, long and lengthy, um, talking about her, her wonderful many children and life and everything. And I just don't, I apologize guys. I'm not in a position where I have time to respond, uh, with lengthy, uh, mail correspondence. They're encouraging to Lindsay and I, we do read them, but I'm, I've literally involved with two businesses and trying to keep the channel going plus trying to finish the study guide. And, you know, I just, I, we get, in addition to physical letters, um, we do get people send us books as well. And they want us to read the books and give them commentary on that. I, I did not have time. I'm so sorry. Um, I wish I had time to do that kind of stuff. Um, I just don't have time for it. Same thing when people send me massive messages in social media messengers, um, whether it's through Gab or Facebook or Instagram, or, you know, I, I just don't have time to read all of them and respond because many people, especially I really feel bad because I try to give priority to the Patreon as much as possible. Um, I do answer other people's questions too. And if you're one that, that you've seen me answer your question, you know that, but I also do try to give those who are support us on Patreon that, that has its own messenger system and people write extremely long and lengthy messages on there that I just don't, you know, I can't, I try to like summarize the points that they try to make and address them. And then if I don't do well enough, they'll come back with an extremely long message again. And I, I don't want to offend anybody. Um, and I try to make myself as available as possible to do these Q and A's at the end of our videos. Um, I just don't have time. 
to answer them all or read every book or message or watch every video that someone sends me. I'm so sorry, guys. I know what it's like to, to, to write to someone or to, to want to give something that you want someone's opinion on or thoughts on. And when you, when you think that you may like how they think or what they're saying, I, I totally get it. I totally get it guys. Um, Rob Skiba ignored me for years until just the last couple of years. He finally started interacting and, but I would send him long and lengthies before I ever had a channel <laughs> back in like 2000. 12 2011 or whatever I, I used to send him long and lengthy exegesis of scripture trying to get his thoughts on certain things and and uh, he answered me like a couple times but then like he stopped answering and i realized you know the dude's not trying to have a personal bible study with me like not that he doesn't not that he doesn't like me or something but just he's busy i mean you know he was much busier than i even am so he definitely had to to skip over a lot of messages he got and couldn't answer them all so i just i've been on both sides of it all right, Noel Brown's asking Revelation chapter 1, 14 and 15. Um, is the sword literal or symbolic? You mean the sword that comes out of his mouth? It's, um, his voice was like the roar of many waters held in his right hand, seven stars, and a sharp double-edged torch came from his mouth. Now, to me, this is a, um, a idiomatic phrase that we see of rulers in the in the scriptures. And uh, I would suggest, I, I don't have the, the scholarly citation to back this up, but I would suggest it's also a, a common idiomatic phrase you would see of all kings in the past who have the authority to take someone's life in judgment. So this is kind of what that he has this, he, in his right hand had seven stars, meaning in his authority, that was another idiomatic reference to what's in your right hand is, is within your authority to go and command. And that's the seven stars that are mentioned previously, which are the seven archangels of God who can go out to do incredible things on the earth because they have an amazing power and a sharp double-edged sword coming from the south. Because what do we see at the judgment at the day of the Lord? We see Michael and the other angels. They wrap up the unclean spirits and Satan and lock them away. The unclean spirits are thrown in the lake of fire. Uh, they wrap up the first and second beast and throw them in the lake of fire. So that's he's talking about the authority he has. To, to go and apprehend and also to judge even unto destruction. So it's symbolic if you want to use that term. Great question, Allison. I was just having a conversation the other day while I was driving on the highway with a brother about um, the idea of, of choice, which is often called free will, or if there's predestination. And actually, um, I wanted to get together a... Um, uh, I'd love to have an actual roundtable discussion about that topic amongst brothers in the faith and kind of spitball back and forth ideas. But my understanding in short was that um, the father will harden your heart in the way that you choose to go. And so therefore Pharaoh, it's um, he intentionally over and over again, chose to reject the warnings, reject Yahweh, disrespect Yahweh, disrespect Aaron and Moses. And so the father continued to harden his heart. So, um, and it's a, and it's a it's a turn of a phrase, if you will, because the father's literally not coming down there and turning his heart into stone. It's just the circumstances is, you know, the, the he's the um, the choices that Pharaoh was making was opening himself up to what's considered a hardening of a heart more and more and more versus someone that's that's uh, sensitive to the father's instructions, his righteous commands. Psalm 119, it enlarges your heart. So, or some people would say softens your heart, right? The more you 
acquiesce and practice the father's ways, the more your heart is softened and becomes like his, the less you reject his, the more you reject his authority and the less that you practice his ways, the harder your heart will, will become. And so that's what we see Pharaoh doing with uh, enslaving the Egyptians for approximately 80 to hundred years and um, uh, illy treating them against Torah. So yeah, hopefully that's a decent short answer for you. All right, looks like West Blaze are asking about. <laughs> All right, so oh, I think that was from what you were trying to ask earlier, maybe Second Ezra seven thirty six. You're asking me, should it be in Ezra's Second Ezra? Uh, let's see. It says Second Ezra thirty six. Then the pit of torment shall appear, and the an opposite sh- and opposite it shall be the place of rest, and the furnace of hell shall be disclosed, and opposite opposite it the paradise of delight. Okay. Um, you're asking, do I think it should be in Second Esdras? I, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think it should be there. Um, to, to my understanding of what First Enoch describes in Revelation 20, uh, this would also be consistent. That the uh, pit of torment shall appear, and opposite shall be the place of rest. So this is going to be, um, like I said, that to, from my understanding, the 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 valley. There's a valley in the New Jerusalem that the king can oversee from the king's throne. And, um, and that's, so, yeah, I I agree. If you're asking about the opposite words, what does that mean to be opposite? But um, to me, it's it's opposite to be a place of rest. The furnace of hell should be disclosed. The furnace of hell should be disclosed and opposite the paradise of delight. Okay, I see what you're saying, because you're thinking it's outside the New Jersey. Yeah, I, to my understanding, first Enoch, it seems to be inside, but um, we should do a study on it, brother. We should try to figure it out and uh, bring bring some extra verses. Um, hmm. Yeah, because I can't remember any of them in First Enoch that might describe the lake of fire in Sheol or coming from Sheol. But if you see, if you found something overlooked, I'm willing to take a look. Let's take a look at it. Uh, Stephanie daughter is asking, uh, thank you for answering my question. I'll check out Torah portions. Who do you believe the bride is of the bridegroom? The bride, well, it, Revelation 21, 9 and 10 tells us, uh, sister, it's the New Jerusalem. So the, again, metaphors. Now, these are metaphors. There's not literally a marriage happen. It's just a, a, talking about going into covenant with each other. Um, and that's where Isaiah 62, 4 and 5 talks about to Zion specifically in that chapter, saying your God, your Elohim, just like I talked tonight, right? The God of New Jerusalem, the ruler of the authority over New Jerusalem. It's been given that that kingdom has been given to Yeshua. The God um, of your God will will enter into covenant with you, will marry you. Same thing as we see expressed to us that the bridegroom is called Yeshua. John, even John the Baptist acknowledges this, and he says he's the friend of the bridegroom, not the bride. Same thing in the in the parable of Matthew 22, 1 through 4. The guests at the wedding are the resurrected saints in white clothing. They're not the bride. Um, because the bride is clearly enunciated for us and and um second uh, Ezra 726 as Zion, the New Jerusalem, as well as Revelation 21, 9 and 10, literally the mountain coming down out of heaven from God is the bride of the Lamb. Uh, this is expressly stated very clearly in the vision to John by the angel in Revelation 21, 9 and 10. Uh, Lucas Bender is asking about Lighthouse. It's in test. We just we've been in uh, public beta testing, as well as uh, 
content creator testing with select content creators and some of the issues that come up, they're now being fixed as far as, you know, that's why you do beta testings. And so it'll be made public here once they get those corrections fixed pretty soon. So it's on its way. We're excited. Uh, Nate Fisheronda. Yeah. Check out um, our contextual study guide is, is what we're, is what I put on screen earlier with the first Enoch, one of the books we've already completed, but we're going through um, hundred plus different books from uh, different canons across the earth, across the body of believers, across the planet of the earth, different canons, not just the American 66 canon that was made, made by the Catholics and propagated by the Protestants. Um, so yeah, we're working on that. It's an ongoing thing we've been working on for like the last year and a half. And um, it's a big project. Thanks, Micah. Thanks, Joe. No, appreciate you, brothers. Guys, uh, I think we're going to cut it off tonight. I'm losing the voice. Yes, John. I Great, great question. In fact, I meant to cover this in the actual breakdown of this. I'll put it back on screen for us. I want you guys to look carefully at what we see here in this passage. So John is saying, and, and he's speaking about the point that I made earlier about Revelation 22, um, 22, 12 and 13, where I said the translators decided to put that text in red, but it's the father speaking, not the son. Check this out. So if we go in here, so here's, here's 12 through 13 where the father's speaking. It should not be in red. That's a translator decision to do that. That was his mistake because it's the father who's the alpha and the omega. And the father is saying, blessed are those who keep the commandments, who wash their robes. They can have the right to eat the tree of life. Wonderful, beautiful lines up with second Ezra's two perfectly harmonious with all of scripture and revelation two and three. But Jesus then starts talking. Yes. What, what do we read in the very beginning? Uh, look at this. And the bride, well, the bride starts talking. Who, what did we just talk, say that is? Spirit and the bride say come. So the father speaking, Jesus speaking, the bride speaking. Look at this though. What did we say in Roman in Revelation 1? What did we go over when we opened up the book of Revelation to go into those verses? There's four people involved in this. What do we remember? Remember, uh, okay, so let me slow down. The Father's talking. Verse 8 starts the message. The Son has moments where he talks as he talks to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, and 1, 2, and 3. The angel talks. Remember, John tries to battle the angel, and the angel's like, oh, no, no, I'm just a servant like you. Worship God. And Jesus talks. And the Spirit, the bride, talks. The same bride who spoke, which is Zion, who speaks in Isaiah 54 and 55, and says, come, all you who want food and water, buy milk and bread without money. Come. The same offer in Revelation 22. Come, all you who are thirsty. Come. Get this water of life. So, again, this information from Jesus Christ, God gave him. So if you're passing along a message, it could have quotations in it from all the people passing along that message. Does that make sense? There's four people mentioned here, God, Jesus, the angel, and John. All of them speak at different times in the book of Revelation. This is why I cannot say this enough, guys. I've said it. Literally, we're making an entire context study guide of all the biblical books Based on this concept, context is how we, we, we keep ourselves from being confused and falling into all these wonky doctrines. Context 
is it creates comprehension. Context. I just read the context of Revelation 1.1, which is the opening to the whole thing that we should keep in mind as the context going forward. This is a message that is spoken by four people. God gave it to Jesus. Jesus spoke it to the angel. The angel speaks it to John. John speaks it to us. Each of them have a, the original message was from God. Jesus added some things in there. The angel added some things in there. And we see John added some things in there while he's speaking the message. This is extremely common when you pass down messages. And this is literally what we see from the context as it delineates who's talking and why and what they're saying. So it's, anyway, great question, brother. Thanks for pointing that out and help me remember. I, I meant to go over that when I was reviewing that that passage, but um, I just got carried away. I forgot. All right. That'll be the last one for tonight. My voice is going. Uh, I got to get up early. So appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for being here. Um. Yeah, you guys are awesome. You guys are awesome. Um, if you guys can, if anyone's in the live chat that that has a moment that wants to drop uh, the videos that we've done on the bride, um, as well as if you want to do the debates that you want to drop the debates that we did with West Blaze and Jake Grant and Anthony Stover on who the bride is. Uh, that's like two and a half hours for our sister Stephanie to look at, as well as our our bride series that we did. Um, if you want to do Kingdom of the Garden. Uh, drop that in the link for her. I really appreciate it. Uh, drop that link for in the live chat. Um, that video, I, I believe, also covers her question on the jewels, the the saints being part of the jewels on the city, uh, as well as um, I want to say even uh, Revelation, or excuse me, Investigating Babylon Part 21. I go over it as well. And so, um, yeah, there's a lot of resources there for your sister here on the channel. I encourage you to check us out. And uh, we, we go over all these topics. And this is why I did the video tonight, right? I realized that this particular part of this argument, this topic, which is is pretty popular, I've actually not done a specific video on this particular part. So I thought I'd address it. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, Lindsay and I appreciate your prayers and all your support, and your wonderful letters and your encouragement. Um, the app should be ready anytime now. I thought he was going to have it for me tonight, but I guess not. Um but the app is still in development and it's going to be amazing. Um, you can't really see it very well, but I've got the prototype. He's still finishing up like all the main stuff, but I do have the prototype um, here. Can't see it. You can't see it very well, but the app is coming guys. It's going to be so much fun. Um, you guys get to go in here and you get to choose whatever tribe you want to be as a part of Israel. And then to confirm after you put in your username, you can change your tribe and username at any time. And then you're going to be able to come through here and we're going to have our, our latest five videos or, or videos of my choice that I'll put up here in the, in the scroll for you to choose different videos to go watch. Um, we're going to have an announcement here. You can go to the announcements. Uh, we've got the fellowship finder is going to be in another build here in another couple months. Uh, the other channels we're promoting as well as uh, any articles that I may be writing that have to do with um, you can, there's going to be seven articles at all times that you can, you can access here and you can even comment on the articles and uh, tell me what you think and chat with people in the app. And there's going to be a lot of, a lot of fun additions we're adding over time, but 1.0 is going to at least get us started. It's going to be great. So hopefully you guys will enjoy it. So thank you so much. Appreciate y'all and we'll see you next time.